so we're back understanding color. At least it's not as freezing as it was last week. I wasn't sure if, uh, if a lot of people were away last week, but it looks like we have the full complement. Um, so today we're going to be doing a lot, of, a lot of what we touched on last week, because a lot of what we covered were very basic core concepts that are absolutely crucial to your understanding of this course. Uh, typically, I will not repeat or go over the same material twice in lecture. Um, this time is, is a once-over um, because the core concept material, color and light, is also fundamental that uh, it's very important for you to have the basis that we need to understand this course. Okay, so today on the agenda, you'll recognize a lot of the same uh, topics. I'm not going to go through all of it in detail as we did last time, but I will give you a basic refresher and a recap. So we'll be talking about color, light, perception, and how all of that folds into our human understanding and perception of color. We'll also be talking in depth. This new material that we're talking about today is more material on the color wheel, the color wheel that painters use that um, Itten had invented in the 1930s. We're also going to be talking more in depth about color mixing. Last time we talked about additive and subtractive color mixtures and how basically black is the absence of all light, so that's subtractive. And when you put all of the colors, the primary colors together and all of the colors together, you get white, which is all of the light together and all of the wavelength superposed in your eye for you to see white. In terms of new material, I hope uh, I can see lots of you have your laptop, so that's good. And I will ask you later on if you have a mobile device, a phone, uh, if you don't have your laptop or a tablet, to take that out because we will be using, part of the participation mark in this course will be using iClicker Cloud, which you may have used in other courses that allows you to use your personal mobile device to answer quick questions, multiple choice discussion and review questions. You'll want to pay attention to these multiple choice questions and actually when we go and take a look at the iClicker application, you'll see that all of our sessions will be listed in the history and you can go over them and see the video screens of what the questions were, what I asked and what the right answers were. This will be extremely useful for you for midterm studying and exam studying because the kind of clicker questions that I'll be asking you, when I say clicker I mean mobile device, it's kind of a throwback, but the kind of questions I'll be asking you will be very similar to the material that you get on the midterm and on your final exam. And just a reminder about that, um, both the midterm, which will be February 28th, and the final exam are fully multiple choice. So there's no short answer questions, no diagrams, no calculations. So this is fully multiple choice. There's enough material for it to be challenging. So it's, it's not an automatic free pass, but I do want you to do well in the course. And that is very much attainable if uh, you are able to keep up with the material and review the lecture slides and the lectures online. At the end of today, um, I missed color schemes and harmonies. So color schemes and harmonies 
is something that's used a lot in graphic design. This class will be kind of like a last review of our core concepts, and we'll talk about how that's used in sort of art a little bit, not, not as fully as we'll get into in another lecture, in art and in graphic design, and what's pleasing to the eye and what works with human vision and human perception. So we'll be talking about color schemes and color harmonies. And then after that, we will be watching, normally I'll, I will give you videos in class to watch, typically YouTube videos, but those will usually be about two or three minutes or so. Uh, the video that we have today is a very well done, uh, I believe it's a BBC production, um, about Newton's crucial experiment, experimentum crucis. We talked about this a little bit last time. We'll go into it uh, in further detail. So after the break, and there'll be a 15-minute break, probably about halfway in the lecture, uh, and that the last thing that we'll do today is watch the video. Just to warn you, the video is 28 minutes. It will be posted online. So if you have to leave, I understand you can leave. Um, I would recommend that you stay and take a look at the video, um, but you can always watch it later at home if you have to sort of uh, get out of here. Okay, so you've already seen this. I'm Jerusha. Um, uh, some of you have emailed me already, and you already did put Nats 1870 in the course um, in the subject line. This really helps me if you're going to email me to get to your email immediately because I have a ton of emails. So please, when you're emailing, just include somewhere in the subject line, Nats 1870, and I'll get back to you as quickly as possible. Okay. And just to remind you again, this is a double speed course. So again, this is the last lecture where we'll be reviewing past material. We'll be sort of forging ahead from now on um, to very little different topics, to sort of different units. First, we'll be looking at a little bit of art and color theory. And then we'll be looking at chemistry and physics, electrons and photons and bonds and ionic bonding, covalent bonding. And then we'll be going back to some more chemistry about paints and dyes and understanding pigments. Okay, so last time uh, I left, left you for your weekend with not homework, but just something to take a look at. Here's a picture of the color wheel with absolutely no color. It looks rather drab. So as the painter in himself, the Bauhaus artist, said, color is life. And that, that looks pretty lifeless. So hopefully, when I give you something in class like this, and I will say, next time, try and do this, uh, it's not homework, it's not graded, but it's just for you to keep on your toes and keep abreast of all the material going on in the course. So hopefully you took a look at this color wheel and uh, were able to fill in a little bit of what we know to be the actual color wheel. We'll be talking about this today and also giving you a really simple, some of you may already be, be very, very much familiar with this. Some of you are probably artists or hobbyists and you may use this um, and know very well paint mixing and other types of things. Um, but if you don't, we'll be talking about a very easy way to remember this so that you can have this as your reference and sort of spit it out when needed. Okay, so let's start off with a quick 
review of some very fundamental definitions. So the first definition that we're going to talk about is light. And last time we talked about light and color, you cannot talk about one without talking about the other. Color and light are intimately connected. Light is essentially a form of energy. When I say energy, I mean something that has the ability to do work. It's a form of energy, and it has both an electric and a magnetic force component to it. And it also behaves in a dual nature. Along with its dual electri electric and magnetic components, it can behave both curiously as a wave, but also as a particle. And this is the wave-particle duality of light. And this gets into a lot of, of really interesting sort of mind-bending physics concepts um, that we will talk about later in the course. But, you, but this is a, a very interesting area. So wave-particle duality and uh, light and light traveling in a vacuum. We'll talk about all of this later. For now, just remember that light, it's energy. It has two components, electric and magnetic, and it travels both as a wave and as a particle. And when I say travels, it means propagates through space. And an important fundamental physics, physical constant of the world we live in is the speed at which light travels through space. The speed of light, c. c is a constant. This has a lot of important implications. Um, C is about 300,000 um, kilometers per second. Okay, so C being a constant, the speed of light, it doesn't change. When you have different things going through different media, sometimes things change. This isn't the case here, and it's the reason for a lot of things, like why we can't travel through time. Another lecture. So light and color, that's all nice, and it, it seems a little bit esoteric. How do light and color relate? Well, light is this form of energy. When you think of color intuitively, you think of something that's blue or of something that's red, or if you're driving and you see a green light, you think of motion, you think of going, like moving. Color seems to have a distinct energy, too. That's actually because, from a physical standpoint, color is what the brain sees when it looks at light and tries to distinguish the different wavelengths of these waves of light. So color is a physical property that is a combination of both the fact that light travels in waves with a certain wavelength and the fact that the brain is seeing all of this coming to it and trying to make sense of it and distinguish it. And the way that we distinguish it and make sense of it is color. So the electromagnetic uh, waves in the room were not working so nicely. The last thing we want to define is the electromagnetic spectrum. I've just said that light is a form of energy that has both electric and magnetic components. The electromagnetic spectrum is all of the light that's out there, all of the light of the universe. We see an extremely small part of this spectrum. 
we're pretty much missing, as, as nice as vision is, we're pretty much missing almost everything in the universe. For example, if you were to, let's say, took the electromagnetic spectrum, all the light there is. If you were to say the whole electromagnetic spectrum is a roll of film, you were to walk that film from Hollywood all the way to Washington, D.C., 2,000 miles of film, and that's all the light there is. The human perception is only one lousy little frame on that whole spectrum. So we are really missing quite a ton. But of that which we do see, of that one frame, that is all divided into colors. The electromagnetic spectrum then can be thought of as a catalog of light. It's light at all wavelengths and all the light that there is, all the light that, regardless of us seeing it or not, is present in the universe. Okay, so if light is energy, and energy is the ability to, to, to do work, how do we know it's, it's there? I mean, we do see it. I mean, you can, you can see the paper in front of you with the 50% illumination in the room, but you also, normally you'd see things like, if you think of water waves, if you think of waves in general, you'd see a wave moving through a certain medium. So water waves move through water, and you see the undulations moving. Light waves move through both mediums, different mediums, but they also move through vacuum. They don't need a solid medium or air or anything. They move through a vacuum. And we see them often when there's contaminants in the air or dust. We see rays of light, as in this lovely kind of tranquil picture here. So light rays, the rays of light, light we see it coming to us in straight lines. That's one of the properties of light. It travels in straight lines. What we call rays of light are how we see light. But these rays are actually manifestations of light as a wave and as a particle. The diagram that I've just put up is, is a little bit confusing at first glance. I think, let me just try, no, it didn't work. Okay. I was trying to get a laser pointer, but, um, oh, yay, okay. All right. So, that's a laser pointer. Okay. Maybe. The, the line here, the purple line, if we have rays, so the rays are coming down in this picture, coming down and to the right. Uh, anything that the light or any other thing has a direction, right? So the direction of light, this is, consider this a light ray. The purple line is the direction in which the light is traveling. There are two different kinds of waves that we generally talk about. There are other kind of distinctions, but for now the most important part is there's two different kinds of waves. We talked last time about longitudinal waves and about transverse waves. What's the difference? The difference is a longitudinal wave would be, say, sound. If I have a sound wave traveling in this direction, the wave travels in the direction of motion. It travels parallel to the direction of motion. With light, 
If the light is traveling this way, the electromagnetic fields are oriented perpendicular or 90 degrees to the direction of motion. And for that reason, we call it transverse. So we call it a transverse electromagnetic wave. Again, all that means is in this diagram here, light is traveling this way and the field, the motion is oriented perpendicular to the direction of propagation. And this may be familiar to you if you remember um, later sort of early uh, in grade 11 or if you did take 11 or 12 physics, uh, they always had the right hand rule, the left hand rule so you could determine the direction of magnetic field if light's traveling that way and you have the, I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever, but in any case, um, this is light. And we're talking about a light ray. And don't get confused when somebody says electromagnetic radiation. It's all the same thing. Radiation is energy. And when we're talking about radiation in the form of, say, light or a light ray, we're talking about energy traveling in a certain direction, behaving as a wave or as a particle, a subatomic particle. Just a, a piece of terminology here. Um, I mentioned perpendicular. So we'll be talking a lot about surfaces because obviously color is a property. When you look at a surface, light is doing many things. It's, it's being emitted onto the surface. Some of it gets absorbed. Some of it gets re-emitted, gets reflected, diffracted, a number of different behaviors. We're talking about a surface that's a plane surface. Uh, you'll hear me often say the surface normal or the normal. I just mean basically if this is a surface, the normal is a line that is 90 degrees or perpendicular to the flat surface, okay. coming out of the surface. That's a surface normal. I've defined here a surface normal further as the normal vector. Um, don't get panicked about the use of the word vector. Vector, it sounds fancy, but it's, just, it's simply um, a quantity that has both magnitude and direction. So it has a certain magnitude, as, as in how much, and it has a direction, north, south, east, west. Let's go back then. Now that we have our definitions of light, we have our definitions of color, and we have our definitions of the electromagnetic spectrum. Let's go back and revise what we mean by color. Can we get a more concise definition for color now? So when you have a material here, like a flat surface, the light is incident on it, the light shines down, many different colors, many different wavelengths of light are shining down on it. They shine down on it as rays, but these rays, they may look to us like straight lines, but they're actually light traveling in waves. And when you look at the different energies that each wave possesses, and we can tell that by the distance, the number of squiggles basically in the line. So the distance between two crests, here this is a crest, and this is a crest, or two troughs. That's a trough, and that's a trough. 
So the longer the wavelength, the longer the distance, the lower the energy, the faster sort of the squiggling, the shorter the wavelength, the higher the energy. So on one side of the spectrum, we have blues and violets. On the other side of the spectrum, we have reds. It goes to the infrared on one end and gamma rays on the other end. So we can define this definition of color now, now that we've talked about this. So color is what we get when we take light and the human eye, so the human camera. Light plus the human device to receive light is equal to color. It is, color then is how the brain distinguishes the different wavelengths of light that are coming in. I just mentioned that light energy is proportional to the wavelength. So our, our rainbow, typically, when you see a rainbow, the rainbow that you see in the sky is just light that's being scattered by water vapor and raindrops. And because it has different energies, you can think of it as coming in sort of at different speeds. So when the incident light rays hit that raindrop, different colors get scattered by different angles. They get scattered by different amounts, and they separate out into their constituent colors, which are the colors of the rainbow that we often call red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. So that's just, just remember Roy G. Biv, somebody's name. We'll be talking a lot in the next, next week, actually, about what the causes of color are. Forgetting um, sort of a, an emotional component of what colors do to us and how they affect us when we see them, there are some very, very distinct physical causes for color. In fact, there are about 15, and really only 15. And almost all of these causes of color have to do with electron transitions. Electrons in atoms gaining or losing energy and jumping up to different orbital levels or falling back down. And what happens when that occurs, when you have electrons moving around in atoms, is you get, with losing and gaining energy, a particle of light, a fundamental unit of light, which is called the photon. So the photon is, you can think of it as a light particle. It's a particle of light. Therefore, it's not surprising to take a look and see if you were to write out the colors of the rainbow in terms of their energy levels in a table like this. We can characterize it in a couple different ways. We can say that the color has properties like wavelength, that distance between crests, it also has a frequency, which is sort of the inverse of the wavelength, which basically is how fast the line squiggles, the number of cycles per second that the wave is doing. And then the photon energy, this strange unit, we'll talk about this later on, this is electron volts, and it will make a lot of sense now, but the photon energy are these discrete levels of what happens when photons jump around and either lose energy or gain energy to become different colors. To 
emit different colors, I should say. Last bit about light waves, how do we visualize this? Because this is all very abstract. We did talk about wavelength, and let's just go back to wavelength for a second. So wavelength, we're going to use wavelength quite a lot in this course. We will not do a lot of calculations. Um, the point is not to kill you with calculations, but to sort of facilitate the understanding. But we, there may be some elementary sort of calculations, which I will walk you through step by step. However, just remember that the wavelength, we denote it by the Greek character lambda, which is this character here. It's a unit of distance, like any unit of distance, like meters or centimeters. But the wavelengths of light that we see in the visible spectrum are very, very, very small. I mean, imperceptibly small. So if a meter is about that big, and a centimeter is about that big, the wavelength of light that we can see ranges from about 400 to 700 nanometers. That's 10 to the minus 9 meters. So that, that's like basically this number, that many meters. Frequency, we've mentioned that frequency is a measure of sort of the the squiggliness. So how many cycles per second? And it's like an inverse of wavelength. So it's, you can think of it as 1 over lambda. And that unit is a unit of cycles per second, but we call it hertz. So to understand then colors with all of this, knowing that light is this mysterious sort of quantity, this is its energy, how can we quantify the property so that we can talk about it discreetly? So if light's energy and energy has properties, we want to take apart these properties to know how much energy is in any given light source and what kind of work it can do. This actually relates to temperature. If you recall temperature, which we'll talk about in a moment, you can think of temperature as a measure of energy in any substance. We'll get to this in a second. But in addition to color and light being related, color, light, and temperature are also very much related. For example, if you were to go to the store, um, or even if you're looking at Christmas lights or lights for a home appliance, there's warm white and there's cool white. Right? These, are, these are just slightly different wavelengths of light. And some have more energy, some have less energy. And we'll get into why these are temperatures and, and why they're broken down like this. But temperature, in the big picture, also relates to color. We'll talk about color temperatures in a moment. Let's just review temperature basics. Temperature is such a, a common concept to us that we don't really necessarily think about the basic definitions of it. Um, but temperature is, when it comes down to it, a measure of energy, a measure of kinetic, average kinetic energy in any substance. 
So if you remember, early on in high school, you learned about the different kinds of states of water, um, different phases of matter. So you have solids, liquids, gases. In a solid, given that everything is composed of molecules, which are composed of atoms, which are composed of smaller subatomic particles, when something is cold, it just means that the energy, the atoms and molecules are not moving around as much as in something that's warm. So in a cold temperature, say solid, the molecules in the substance form a kind of a lattice and they're very, very tightly packed together. It's like they're losing energy and if you think about when you're cold and you're, you're standing with your friend, you kind of huddle together in order to preserve that energy between you. So in a solid, we have a tight lattice of molecules. Low energy molecules, meaning they're not vibrating very fast or very far apart. In the next phase of matter, if we heat up a solid to the point where it becomes a liquid, so in, with water, if you do this, you melt ice, and ice becomes liquid water. The molecules then acquire a little bit more vibrational energy. They can move around a little bit more. And in a liquid, if you were to look at the molecular level, the molecules are further apart. And the same is true of a gas. If you heat this water up to 100 degrees Celsius, you boil it, well, then it becomes water vapor. And in the gas, in water vapor, the molecules have a ton of vibrational energy. They're very far apart. And the density of the molecules, how close they are together, is low. So they're far apart. Okay, this is the gas. So in, in other words, temperature is a quantity of energy. Solids have le less energy. This liquid here would have more energy. And this gas here, out of the three of them, would have the most kinetic. Kinetic means motion, the most kinetic energy. With temperature, for human beings, you know, temperature relative to what? Temperature is a relative quantity. If you have bath water, you put your foot in, in a cold tub and you put your foot in a warm tub, it gives you a clear reference. You know, one's warm, one's cool. So we always measure temperature relative to something. In our daily lives, and since we live basically on a planet that has evolved around a certain type of star, which is the sun, which is a, type, a certain type of, like, we'll get into that later, but the sun has dictated the evolution of a lot of life on this planet. And one of the key factors to life on the planet being so abundant is water. So when we talk about temperature, we often use water as our reference point for temperature. So our scales Celsius and our scales Fahrenheit really are, are based all around the phase changes of water, right? You think about zero degrees, if you're at minus two, minus five, it's really, really cold, things are freezing. Above zero, the snow may not uh, stay on the ground for long. And then when it's really warm, well, there's no snow at all. This is very human with water. So in this course, we're going to actually introduce a different unit. Um, again, you may be familiar with this unit. It's used widely. But the unit we're going to be using is called Kelvin, denoted by this degrees K. Instead of, 
Celsius and Fahrenheit, which really take their reference points from water. The Kelvin temperature scales takes its reference point from something called absolute zero. And absolute zero does relate to this, but it's not specific to water. So absolute zero does relate to phases of matter, but it is basically the coldest temperature at which, if you were to look at these molecules vibrating, they have almost no vibrational energy. They appear almost still, if you could see the motion. So this is absolute zero. And that's a very, very, very low temperature. It's actually almost minus 300 degrees Celsius, minus 273.15 K. Don't worry, it's on the next slide if you missed that. So with our temperatures for weather, we talk about Celsius, we talk about Fahrenheit. We know this is around water. With absolute zero, Kelvin is the scale that comes into play. And why would we want this? I mean, really, we're, we're not really so concerned about extreme temperatures in our day-to-day -day lives. That's true. But if you're talking about, say, stars or galaxies or even the temperature of a light bulb, you know that you cannot touch a light bulb or touch the tungsten filament. We need a broader temperature range to talk about extremely cold and extremely hot temperatures. And that is Kelvin. So with, with Kelvin, the Celsius, there's no difference in proportionality here. One degree Celsius is one degree Kelvin is one degree Fahrenheit. It's all the same that way. But if you were to try and convert to Kelvin, what we know is this temperature, this absolute zero temperature, minus 273.15 degrees Celsius, is the zero reference point on the Kelvin scale. Okay, that's, that's good. So, for example, if we had a warm spring day, which we're dying for right now, 20 degrees Celsius, what would that be um, in Kelvin? What would the equivalent temperature be? Anybody want to hazard a guess? If we know that this number is basically zero, right, exactly. So, it's just 20 plus. 273.15. So when we talk about, we will later talk about temperatures of stars, temperatures of galaxies, temperatures of the atmosphere, of cloud layers on other planets, we'll use Kelvin. But for now, all you have to remember is this magic number. And if we do calculations, we'll, we'll go through that step by step later on. Okay. Brightness temperatures, color temperatures. Going back to everyday living for a second, here's a, a graph which shows you, these are LEDs, LED lights. And we were saying about water temperatures between being like zero and 100 degrees Celsius. Well, here's a Kelvin scale, which is basically plus 300 for Celsius scale. And here are different color lights. Here's your warm white that you have in your Christmas lights that are a little more yellowy red and they look a little softer. And here's your cool white. And you can see there's quite a huge, like 5,000 degree almost, or 4,000 degree temperature difference between this cool white, which is really cool, more in the red end of the spectrum, and this, uh, sorry, the warm white and the cool white. 
you can take a look at this. We're not going to get into everything here, but you, know, you can know that direct sunlight, remember, colors and temperatures are related. So we talked about wavelengths. Longer wavelengths are at the red end of the spectrum. Higher wavelengths, shorter ones, are at the blue-violet end of the spectrum. So temperature is going to be lower down here and higher up here. So when you have a candle flame, for instance, and you often see layers in the candle flame close to the wick, what is the color of, of the one that's closest to the wick, typically, if you've take, taken a look at a candle flame? It's blue, right? Okay, so it's blue, typically. And as you move further up, it gets yellow, yellow, orangey, red. The hottest part of the flame is blue, blue-white. And this is the hottest, these, these are the hottest things in nature. So the hottest stars, even stars have classifications due to temperature and color. The hottest stars that turn into supernova, that explode and create all of the elements that create life, these are blue-white stars. And we'll talk about a little bit more of that later on. For now, let's go back and, and then, given that we know now temperature, color, and light are related, light is the electromagnetic spectrum, not just visible light, but all the light that we see, here's a nice diagram that gives you an idea of temperature scales. So the range that we see as human beings, this is really not to scale, but see where this little sort of rainbow is. That's supposedly the range of visible light, 400, approximately 400 to 700 nanometers. So on the larger, longer wavelength end of the spectrum, we have things like radio waves, which are as long as buildings. It can be meters. And then moving up all the way to the higher end of the spectrum, we have the most energetic events, the most energetic objects in the universe, such as quasars in distant galaxies. Just gives you an idea of this vast scale, distances from meters to infinitesimally small, from far red to high UV, infrared, I should say. And just remember that when you're looking at this diagram, our color perception tends to be um, just because of the emotional impact it has on us, it's a psychological effect. We tend to say red is hot, blue is cold. It couldn't be more wrong. It's, it couldn't be more opposite, right? Blue is hot. Nobody says you're blue hot. You're red hot. But in fact, blue in terms of a color temperature will be the hottest temperature, and red will be the coldest one. And now we're going to just quickly take a look to bring all this home, because it's a lot to sort of absorb. Um, I'm just going to show you quickly a YouTube video about the electromagnetic spectrum. Just to remind you, all the slides will be posted, and you can watch these anytime at your leisure. It's a very short video.
Something surrounds you, bombards you, some of which you can't see, touch, or even feel. Every day, everywhere you go, it is odorless and tasteless, yet you use it and depend on it every hour of every day. Without it, the world you know could not exist. What is it? Electromagnetic radiation. These waves spread across a spectrum from very short gamma rays to X-rays, ultraviolet rays, visible light waves, even longer infrared waves, microwaves, to radio waves which can measure longer than a mountain range. This spectrum is the foundation of the information age and of our modern world. Your radio, remote control, text message, television, microwave oven, even a doctor's x-ray, all depend on waves within the electromagnetic spectrum. Electromagnetic waves, or EM waves, are similar to ocean waves in that both are energy waves. They transmit energy. EM waves are produced by the vibration of charged particles and have electrical and magnetic properties. But unlike ocean waves that require water, EM waves travel through the vacuum of space at the constant speed of light. EM waves have crests and troughs like ocean waves. The distance between crests is the wavelength. While some EM wavelengths are very long and are measured in meters, many are tiny and are measured in billions of a meter, nanometers. The number of these crests that pass a given point within one second is described as the frequency of the wave. One wave, or cycle, per second is called a hertz. Long EM waves, such as radio waves, have the lowest frequency and carry less energy. Adding energy increases the frequency of the wave and makes the wavelength shorter. Gamma rays are the shortest, highest energy waves in the spectrum. So, as you sit watching TV, not only are there visible light waves from the TV striking your eyes, but also radio waves transmitting from a nearby station, and microwaves carrying cell phone calls and text messages, and waves from your neighbor's Wi-Fi, and GPS units in the cars driving by. There is a chaos of waves from all across the spectrum passing through your room right now. With all these waves around you, how can you possibly watch your TV show? Similar to tuning a radio to a specific radio station, our eyes are tuned to a specific region of the EM spectrum and can detect energy with wavelengths from 400 to 700 nanometers, the visible light region of the spectrum. Objects appear to have color because EM waves interact with their molecules. Some wavelengths in the visible spectrum are reflected and other wavelengths are absorbed. This leaf looks green because EM waves interact with the chlorophyll molecules. Waves between 492 and 577 nanometers in length are reflected, and our eye interprets this as the leaf being green. Our eyes see the leaf as green, but cannot tell us anything about how the leaf reflects ultraviolet, microwave, or infrared waves. To learn more about the world around us, Scientists and engineers have devised ways to enable us to see beyond that sliver of the EM spectrum called visible light. Data from multiple wavelengths help scientists study all kinds of amazing phenomena on Earth, from seasonal change to specific habitats. Everything around us emits, reflects, and absorbs EM radiation differently based on its composition. 
A graph showing these interactions across a region of the EM spectrum is called a spectral signature. Characteristic patterns, like fingerprints within the spectra, allow astronomers to identify an object's chemical composition and to determine such physical properties as temperature and density. NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope observed the presence of water and organic molecules in a galaxy 3.2 billion light-years away. Viewing our Sun in multiple wavelengths with the SOHO satellite allows scientists to study and understand sunspots that are associated with solar flares and eruptions harmful to satellites, astronauts, and communications here on Earth. We are constantly learning more about our world and universe by taking advantage of the unique information contained in the different waves across the EM spectrum. Okay, so that gives a nice overview of, of electromagnetic waves. Uh, I've sort of mentioned to you before that my specialty in research is um, astrophysics. Actually, it's actually radio astronomy and atmospheric physics. So when you think of, of what they were talking about with Spitzer Space Telescope, there are two kinds of different types of astronomy, really. There's optical astronomy, which involves visible wavelengths of light. And then there's radio astronomy, which, which involves those sort of larger, longer radio waves. And from radio astronomy, because they're so long, they come to us from the furthest parts of the universe, we can really almost see back in time, given that the light is traveling so far from the earliest moments after the Big Bang. It's, it's a really interesting subject that we can touch on more. It's, it's not for today, because that would be beyond the scope and get very confusing. But just be aware that from the longest radio wavelengths, if any of you saw that movie Contact, I guess it's getting kind of old now, but uh, in, in the Contact, uh, Jodie Foster was a radio astronomer. And they had these enormous radio telescopes, which would be like 25 meters in diameter. And the way that we find light and look at light from the furthest reaches of the universe is by interconnecting radio telescopes around the globe. And as the Earth rotates, it kind of synthesizes a giant radio dish that is the diameter, sort of, of the whole Earth. And then we can see the furthest, most distant reaches of the hidden universe. So in terms of the electromagnetic spectrum, why is an astronomer teaching a course on color? Well, because we study the electromagnetic spectrum, and that's all about color, it's all about temperature, it's all about different wavelengths. Okay, so let's talk about the properties of waves really briefly. If it's not uh, drilled into your mind by now, just quickly to remind you, properties of waves, we talked about wavelength, the distance between crests, we talked about um, the speed of light, C, if it's moving this way, at the speed of light, C. Um, and we talked about uh, frequency, so the number of cycles per second of the wave. One thing I didn't mention yet was amplitude, and the amount of energy. So you can see the height of this trough, from the, the, the zero line to the depression here, and the height of this crest. 
That is the amplitude of the wave, and that tells you how energetic the wave is. Don't worry about this too much right now. What I'd really like to do, and before we take a, a break here, because this is a, is a lot to synthesize, um, let's take a look at reef. Oh, sorry, I keep calling it reef, but it's eye clicker cloud for the polling. It used to be called reef. So if everybody can take out your phones, um, those of you who have laptops, and hopefully, I, I did request that you download the application. So if you have not done that yet, you won't be able to do that now. Don't worry. Uh, you probably won't have time to do it right now. Um, I'm not going to be marking participation marks from this class. I just want to get us started with it. So for those of you who do have the iClicker application, please log into it now. What you will have done is created a student account and it's free. Uh, some of you um, have asked about subscription fees. You may get some annoying messages that say polling expires soon, polling expires in 15 days, or polling expires depending on how long you've used it. Um, York has an arrangement with iClicker, um, so York has an exclusive contract with iClicker. So once you log into the course, and it will come up as a York course, do not worry about those messages. It will not ask you to pay anytime you're doing any kind of polling. It shouldn't ask you to pay in this course. So if somebody has that kind of a message, if it won't allow you to do it, please speak to me. Um, I'll have to speak to Learning Technology Services. And uh, appreciate your patience. You know, this is a new contract with York this year. So it is kind of in a testing phase. So if you could bear with us, that would be great. All right, so now that you have your devices, is everybody with a device in the application right now? You'll see that when you create an account, you choose your institution, and it should show up Nats 1870N, Understanding Color. I have my name there. Okay. So let's see how this works. Now, I'm going to have to move out of here for a second. And, of course, they don't have it installed nicely in here. Uh, no. Sorry. I had signed in, and now it signed me out. Don't worry, this is not going to take this long every time. It will be actually really quick. I used it in the summer, and it was really, really easy once everybody got set up. Okay. So when you do look at the courses, you will see here, you'll see a number of courses, but select York University and select Understanding Color. What I'm going to do now is start a polling session. So it'll tell you, we're starting a polling session. 
That's lovely. Update now. No, go away. All right. Okay. So I'm starting a multiple choice session. Um, and the polling is now open. You can see that there's a countdown window. And the countdown gives you a certain amount of time to answer the questions. So let's go back to our slideshow. Unless it logged me out of there. Looks like it did. Sorry about that. this over for a second. So typically, once we go through here, this is what you'll typically see, and I promise this will be much more smooth next time. So we have a multiple choice. The polling session has started. It should start to notify you on your phone or on your computer. It will say, polling session started. Do you want to join? And you would say yes. So as you can see, this is happening in real time. Okay, great. So we've got a few of you already in the polling session. And um, great. So, so what are we going to do? Yeah, grab a coffee. Grab a coffee sounds good. Oh, no, please don't leave. <laughs> but you could, I guess. OK, so, so that's basically how it's going to work. And once I, I stop the polling here with this, this, this thing, <laughs> then I will select the right answer. So the right answer, let's say it's grab a coffee. So there you go. Okay, so when, when you have this and when you log back in to iClicker, you will see, this is the first session that we have in this course, you will see all the questions. You'll have a printout of the screen and a printout of the results. So you can use this as a sort of study guide when you're going over review. Let's try another one now that we, we finally have this up here. Okay, let's quickly try another one. All right, let's, let's look at um, multiple choice. So I will start another polling session in a second. But let's look at this diagram, the one that should be pretty easy, given I've been droning on about it for quite a while. Uh, which of these letters, A, B, C, or D, represents the wavelength of a wave? Okay. Okay, yes, that's good to shout it out, but let, <laughs> let's start the session and let's see what you say. Oh, there we go. C, okay. Wow, great. 90, 101, okay. Wow, okay, so there you go. So, so C is, is the correct answer. I'll stop it. I will confirm that this is the correct answer, and uh, there you are. So this is how iClicker is going to work. Um, it will be a much more integrated, smooth process. I'll give you some time to log into the app at the start of every class, and I'll let you know a couple, a minute or so before I'm going to start a polling session to say, okay, it's time to get everything out. And um, I know that you can't always be here all the time. You'll have illness. You'll have other commitments. Uh, but if you answer, it doesn't mat answer, matter if you answer the questions right or not, as long as you participate and answer 80% of the questions that I ask in the course, you will get your 5% participation mark. 
And this is, you know, it's, it's part of the reason is as well, it's good for me to see feedback. Uh, obviously the questions were kind of silly, but when we have more difficult concepts and we're, we're kind of going further in the course, it will give me a little bit of an idea of where people are falling down or what people really understand. So I appreciate the feedback. Um, another thing about feedback is I really appreciate your feedback to me. If you are not comfortable giving me feedback directly, in natural science we have something called class representatives. Uh, I'll talk about this more next time, but um, just to put the idea out there, if you're interested in being a class representative, we need two of them for this class. So what that would involve is being the point person to speak with other people, and if people have concerns, they could come to you, and you would relay that to me or to the TAs or to the natural science department. And then we can kind of have, I know maybe intimidating to the person who's grading you, you don't want to say, hey, look, I really don't understand how you explained that, that was awful. So it's easier to have a student to talk to, right? So give it some thought. Um, there are benefits to being a class rep in the sense that you get to liaise with the natural science division, the department, get to know some people, and it also looks good on a resume um, for future, future endeavors. So I'll talk about that later, but just that's something to throw out there for now. All right. Put this over here and put this up here. Let's see. Okay, so I'm almost at the break. Patience for a little bit more. Um, black body radiation. You know how I showed nice long strips of rainbows, the spectra, spectrum. A spectrum of visible light with all of those rainbow colors is going to be a continuous spectrum. So when you see that bar of rainbow colored light that ranges from 400 to 700 nanometers, the visible light spectrum, that is what we call a continuous spectrum. We'll be talking about emission spectra, so what kinds of light an object emits. We'll be talking about absorption spectra, and all of this is coming next lecture to you in um, a more pictorial way. So again, the big picture to remember is blue is hotter, red is colder. Each object, this chair for example, if I were to have a camera, a spectrographic camera here, I could photograph it and see what wavelengths it's emitting and also see what wavelengths it's absorbing. And this is, gives it kind of like, it's like a fingerprint. It's really like Spectral signatures are like the crime scene investigation of, of light, of the universe, of things we can't always touch. So if we want to know what a star is made out of, as you saw in the video, we can take a photograph of the light coming from the star, and depending on the peaks in the spectrum and the dips, where things are absorbed, where things are emitted, we can tell the chemical composition of the star, and a couple other things about it. So we'll be studying spectroscopy, which is the study of spectra, a lot in this course. Okay. Just remember as well that when we talk about spectra, we are talking about those rainbow Roy G. Biv colors, 
black and white, as we said last lecture, black and white are not technically colors. Black is the absence of light. White is all the light together. And you can think of, if you see a spectrum that's all black, that just simply means all of the light being shone onto the object is absorbed. If the spectrum is all rainbow colors really brightly, it means all of the colors that are shone onto that object are completely reflected. Like this. And just to give you a quick sample of, of I said with a star, you can see what it's made out of. With hot gases, with, with anything really, you could take a spectra of it and see its composition. So for a lot of the gases, the inert gases, the noble gases, um, like hydrogen, helium on the periodic table, we, they have a very clear spectral signature. They have a pattern that they consistently display when you look at the absorbed light and when you look at the emitted light. And this gives us, as soon as we see, maybe, <laughs> as soon as we see an emission, okay, so this top one is, is the spectrum, two spectra, the emission and absorption spectrum of hydrogen, and the bottom is helium. As soon as we see these patterns, so you can see this is all black in the background, this is emission, it means it emits at only these few wavelengths. The light is being emitted at those wavelengths of light. The absorption, you see the whole spectrum being reflected, but where there's a dip, where there's a black curve here, is where the light is being absorbed. So this all together is kind of like a barcode for each chemical element. It really is a unique spectral signature. And astronomers will know these hydrogen and helium lines, and they have actual names. Um, they've got certain wavelengths. You can recognize this. You can get to the point where you can look at something and say, okay, I get that. That's, that's iron. That's magnesium. That's helium. Um, that's nice. But uh, most people aren't looking to look at helium, hydrogen, or iron. Uh, what about more normal things? Well, here is a graph. Don't worry about this percentage reflectance. It's, it's just a percentage reflectance, how much light out of 100% is reflected. So this is um, a NASA graph of spectral signatures of common, some common Earth features. So let's say you were flying over um, a landscape, and you were spectrally photographing this landscape. Just based on the spectrum alone, those little areas of absorption and emission, you could tell where there was fresh water, where there was uh, clear water, where there's turbid water, where the soil is wet, where the soil is dry, and the vegetation as well. By the spectral emission and absorption, you could see what's coniferous and what's deciduous vegetation. So this is really important in things like remote sensing when we are looking to see how things on Earth are affected. Lights, again, we had that LED chart with a different color temperature. These graphs here, this is relative energy percentage, amount of energy. And this is the wavelength along the bottom. So 400 is violet and 700 is red. 
So these curves show you the relative intensity for each of these very common sources of light. The tungsten lamp would just be, you know, an incandescent, regular incandescent light bulb, a 40 watt bulb that you have in a small lamp at home. A fluorescent lamp like these, which annoy me no end, but because they can be irritating to the eyes because of the wavelength and they can give migraine sufferers headaches. But you can see there's peaks in the fluorescent lamp, this blue curve here. There's a peak here, there's a peak here, and that's what sort of needles your brain and gives you that migraine headache. Okay, so this is, this is really interesting. And again, here's more spectroscopy in the sciences. It's used in just about every science. I said it's like crime scene investigation. Well, it is crime scene investigation. I mean, it's used at crime scenes extensively. Um, and again, we have the spectrum. And you can see these lines have certain sequences. They have names. They have wavelength numbers and they can be commonly recognized like iron, calcium, hydrogen, sodium, oxygen, etc. One quick thing to talk about is the spectrum. When we have some big peak, remember the bulb that I showed you with the two peaks in wavelength? This is called a linear spectrum. When you have a peak in one color, so it is a very high peak in relative intensity from 0 to 100, in a narrow band. Okay, so we've got, this is blue, green, and red. We'll talk about peaks in spectra later. Black body radiation is something we'll talk about um, next time. It's not as complicated as it seems. It sounds a little bit um, odd, considering that we said black is the absence of color. But black body radiation is just has to do with continuous spectra and um, typical curves in continuous spectrum. Now stars, a last thing to say about stars, you will not be tested on this diagram. This is not an astronomy course, but um, some of you may recognize this. This is the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And this is basically an aging diagram for stars. Stars follow a path like humans. I mean, you start very young as an infant and you get to old age, so stars follow this kind of a path based on their composition and their temperature. And again, spectral types of stars have to do with the temperature. The more energetic, the higher temperature are the blue end of the spectrum stars, and the lower energy, lower temperature are the red spectra stars. So color permeates everything, from everyday to the very, very non-everyday. And finally, before we, we go for a break and grab that coffee, let's take a look at a portrait of the universe. We use the electromagnetic spectrum to see things that the human eye can't see. This probably doesn't mean much to you. It kind of looks like a, a big, this is false color, by the way. It's, um, this is the essential picture of the earliest picture of the universe. This is all of the light in the universe going back as far as we can see, showing you regions of dense, like lots of dense density, high stars, and regions of empty space here by the blue. This is called the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, or the WMAP picture. 
It's a space instrument. And what are you actually looking at here? That doesn't make a lot of sense when you just see that globe. Well, what you're looking at is a photograph from WMAP, the satellite, looking back in time all the way, essentially, to the Big Bang, when the first light ever exploded out into space from a singularity. These are fluctuations in the thermal temperature, in the background cosmic microwave radiation of the universe. So looking back, that round picture that you saw was a mosaic put together of the galactic plane and everything around it. Again, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So here is a quick animation of what that actually is. Imagine the spacecraft sensing, basically, here's Earth, uh, creating a grid and projecting that grid out. So looking into the earliest reaches of the universe, this is the galactic plane here, as far as you can see. This is the whole picture of the universe itself. These are in different wavelengths. And you can see the structure of the universe itself, and in fact, really, really interesting thing in microwave is that you have, the universe seems to follow a plane kind of layout. It has a plane. Okay. Uh, all right, cancel. Uh, it has um, certain areas that are densely populated and certain areas that are less densely populated. And in fact, when you look into the night sky, even if you had all the light pollution gone and all the lights off, you do see a lot of stars, but that's nothing compared to if you were in another area in the universe, because we are in an extremely low-density bubble of the universe. So if you live on another planet and you could possibly be on another planet that was habitable, um, and look out into other areas of the universe, you'd see a lot more stars, a lot more galaxies. So this is how we use the EM spectrum to unhide the hidden. And here's an example of all different wavelengths, thermal, so infrared radiation. This is an X-ray. And this is a UV picture of different wavelengths of the sun. So the electromagnetic spectrum using spectroscopy and different tools is our eyes. And we can actually look at this with respect to color and with respect to painting because when you, let's say you take an x-ray of a painting, that doesn't seem to be too interesting. It actually is, depending on the pigments that the artist used and depending on how the canvas was structured or how they may have deassembled de and reassembled it, you can see hidden features in a painting from an x-ray that weren't there. You can see faces, you can see things that were completely painted over. So we'll take a look at that when we come back from the break. Okay, so I'll give you a 15-minute uh, break, and it is 9.43. So we'll come back at, at 10 o'clock.
And um, what I'm looking at here is your Moodle course page. If you haven't visited your, the Moodle course page yet, uh, please take a look. There's uh, a lot of important information on there, including the course outline. So all the main information, and if you weren't here in the first class, I just made a, a sort of a quick preview video that can give you a, a little bit of a flavor of, of what the course is about. So you can take a look at that. It's about three minutes. Um, course announcements. You've already seen a number of course announcements from me. They'll come directly to your email. Uh, I will email you when assignments are due, just to give you reminders. Or if, we want, if there's something you have to do for class, uh, I'll also send you an email about that. Um, one thing to mention is, because this course is, it doesn't actually have a lab component, like a number of other NATS courses do, uh, you, won't really, you won't really be interacting with your TAs. Your TAs will be, there's five of them, and they will be marking your assignments and marking your work. But you don't get, unfortunately, that personal connection. Um, so if you need extra assistance, you're welcome always to email me and to make an appointment. I don't have a set office hour, but I'm happy to meet with you. We can arrange an appointment and have an extra help session. The other thing that you can do um, if you need either help in this course or in any sort of general science uh, NATS course or sort of a refresher for the mathematics element in, in your courses, there is this program called MAID or MathAID in NATS. And the document of that is in your course, out, uh, your course section in Moodle. So MAID in NATS is a, uh, a free drop-in session um, for you to attend at any time that you can. It's in Bethune College, which is sort of down at the other end of campus, which is a science college. And you will, if you do drop into one of these sessions, there'll be a number of natural science TAs there. They're all graduate students in either physics, astronomy, earth and space science. And they all have the know-how to help you with any assistive math or problem solvings, equations, scientific notation, graphs, astronomy, physics, chemistry, etc. So please do make uh, good usage of this service. It's kind of like having a private tutor because I think at the moment a lot of people don't use it. But uh, if you are looking for tutoring, uh, please avail yourselves to Maiden Mats. And again, the information for that is right here in this section. One other thing that I will post, I mentioned about class representatives. So this week, uh, one thing I said last time was the course slides, the lecture notes, and the recordings. I'll, I'll be posting this set of notes immediately right after lecture, and the recording should become available within a couple hours. Uh, the other thing I will post for you to consider is the documentation about being a class representative. So you can have a look through that and see what that entails if, and if it might uh, appeal to you. All right. So let's go back. Let's get started again here. And we were talking about using the electromagnetic spectrum and light to 
to have a window into hidden objects in the universe. So all of the sort of space curiosities that we can see, so we, the macroscopic on one end of the spectrum and the microscopic on the other end of the spectrum. And even things that are just hidden from basic viewing, from visible light. So if we look at paintings, we're going to go look in a moment at the color wheel. We can actually see underlying structures, pigments upon pigments, paints upon paints, um, tape, different things. And you'll actually, if you take a look at this link right here, it's really amazing sometimes what you see in x-rays of paintings. So this is a famous Picasso's Blue Room painting. Um, if you take a look at this later at, uh, by yourself, you can just simply go through, mouse over the picture and click on the mouse, and you can see actually what was here at x-ray. So look, there's, a, there's actually like a self-portrait in there as you scan through this picture. And this all came out in an x-ray. We'll be talking about Picasso, we'll be talking about Van Gogh, because um, Van Gogh, Picasso, Mondrian, Surratt, uh, all of these painters really use the interaction of color and light and form in their paintings. The Impressionists, for example. So here's Van Gogh's patch of grass. Well, it really doesn't look like a patch of grass in x-rays at all. It looks like he was painting something quite different. I'm not exactly sure what. Oh, there he goes, the face. There's a portrait in there. So that's quite interesting. That just came out with an x-ray. Um, again, in these, you can see that this was done later. This is painted over. And then this really, okay, this is also interesting. It looks quite the same in the painting, except for the whale. There's a beached whale in his earlier painting. And then lastly, this is one of my favorites, is um, this was a painting of Surat. This was Surat's mistress. And he kind of painted it like a, an ode to her. And in the picture, he actually inserted a, a self-portrait of himself in the mirror there. And his friends told him it looked silly, so he took it out. But uh, he's there in the mirror painting her in the x-ray. Another thing that we can, can do is look at artifacts, look at art, look at architecture, and take things that we otherwise would be afraid to touch, open up, contaminate, such as, I mean, I'm sure you have seen x-rays of sarcophagi, of mum mummified remains, and just using probing with the electromagnetic spectrum, we can look inside these objects that we don't want to disturb. This is uh, a series of multispectral, so many wavelengths, multispectral uh, photographs of, this is a mummy, but this is not your typical mummy that you'd think of in Egypt. Um, in one period of Egyptian history, Romans, a number of Romans lived in Egypt and they took over the process of mummification, but they also, instead of having the sarcophagi that were highly sculpted, they painted portraits and they had also um, sort of tapestries, mosaics on their portrait of the sarcophagus. So they had the mummified body inside and the portrait of the person 
on the top. So this is a mummy, the lid of a sarcophagus from a mummy that was found in ancient Egypt. The Fayum is just a very green oasis-like area where a lot of nobles lived in ancient Egypt. But this is a young man. This picture, no, it died. Okay, so this, this picture on the top, the top uh, right corner here is, sorry, left corner on your side is visible spectrum. And as you look clockwise, all of these different pictures were taken with either infrared or ultraviolet um, spectra. And you can see a number of things. One of them in particular, in that second portrait where the pigment on the skin is a lot darker, notice there's a glowing red stripe on his shoulder. And that tells us, that gives us a lot of clues about the archaeology of this object. That glowing red uh, is an effect of a certain pigment that has a certain chemical composition called matter red. So that says a lot about what the chemicals they were painting with were and potentially when, around when in antiquity, this was actually done. So you can get quite a lot of really exciting information about, out of archaeology, all fields of science, really, all fields of, of everything. Okay, let's switch gears for a moment here. So we talked about the universe being hidden and we're actually exposing it using different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. And this is exactly what Newton did with his pivotal and his crucial experiment of light. And of course, to be fancy, you have to say experimentum crucis, the crucial experiment in 1664. Um, and it seems rather almost like child's play now, but at the time, people did not understand what color was or how light worked. Newton took a prism, he took sunlight from, this, from the sun, directed the sunlight, oh no, don't tell me, okay. I think the battery died. All right, so we'll, we'll go from here then. So he directed the sunlight through a room, through an aperture or a hole, slit. Um, to do this, he, he directed it onto a triangular prism. The triangular prism, I mean, you see them all over the place. Uh, at that time, they were nice, pretty curiosities. Um, and people thought, actually, that because they noticed that when they shone light through prisms, all these colored reflections would appear everywhere. And they thought that it was an inherent property of the triangular prism that it actually colored light. Well, Newton didn't think so and didn't experiment to prove it. He shone sunlight through the prism and saw that the prism had the effect of separating it out into its constituent wavelengths. He assumed that this was happening, he hypothesized this, because he felt like, he, he decided that his theory was the light rays were being bent or refracted and diffracted at different angles, the different colors, because they had different energy levels. And basically, he projected this on a piece of paper or a screen to see the colors of the rainbow. And he spent a lot of time studying this. This is one of his original diagrams. 
He wrote Optics, which is one of the masterworks of physics. Um, optics with a K. Uh, his book was published um, at the behest of the Royal Society. And if you take a look at these links later on, I'm not going to go to them now, you can actually see full editions of this edition is his optics books, 1704 edition, um, with type, type of, uh, transcribed with uh, typography. And this is a 1712. This original edition is really quite beautiful to look at. It's almost impossible to read because the font and the style is very strange. The Fs look like Ss. But it's interesting to take a look at, just as an artistic sort of curiosity and a testament to the printing of the day. So this is what happened. He took the light, shone it through a prism. The light broke up into all the different colors of the rainbow. He showed that it wasn't a property of the light by reinserting a different prism and making that bent light that had been refracted and turned into different colors of the rainbow reunify and come out the other side as white light. And this was the basis of Newton said there were seven, I think, nine steps. And this is the basis for him basically de determining how light behaved. His systematic and ongoing experiments with prisms, with optics, with ref reflection, refraction, diffraction, scattering, he quantified the behavior of light and was able to say that there were many different ways in which light behaves. So some of them that we see in nature, we know that light is absorbed, light is also emitted, it's transmitted, it's reflected, it's refracted or bent, it can scatter like a rainbow, light's just scattering off raindrops, it can interfere with each other. This is a really interesting property of light. If light is waves, you think of wave fronts, you see sort of dark areas of constructive and destructive interference. Wave fronts can interfere with each other and create patterns. And this we'll talk about in future because it has many implications and provides an even deeper way in which we can study all kinds of different phenomena. We'll also talk about luminescence. One of the more beautiful phenomena of light is bioluminescence. If you've ever seen those pictures of uh, a beach, and the beach is just glowing. Uh, I'll have to show you one of those, but the beach is, is glowing. That's from small organisms, single-celled organisms called dinoflagellates. They, f they fluoresce, they bioluminesce, and you get these incredible vistas in nature, just with rich colors just because of this. So going back to color, let's quickly talk about the properties of color. We talked about the properties of light. I think you've, you've had it this time with the properties of light. So how do we characterize color? Light is an objective physical thing. Color, we know, is what our brain sees and how we distinguish different wavelengths of light. So is there an objective way to describe and categorize color? Can we talk about properties of color? And it turns out, yes, we can. Uh, painters, artists, scientists have been looking at this for such a long time. And we'll go over 
sort of the development of how color theory came about next time. But to recap from the previous lecture, there are three important properties of color that we really talk about in painting, printing, uh, image fidelity, any kind of representation we talk about hue, value, and saturation. Hue is very simple. It's the most basic one. Hue is the actual color that we see. So in this diagram, a hue, a hue would be red, orange, blue. Value is the lightness or the darkness of the color. So if you were to picture everything as grayscale, as either very, very completely white or completely black, in gradations of 10 from 0 with being black to 10 being white, the value is how light or dark it is. So if we have a hue of red, this red value, it means the brightness or the lightness, the darkness or the lightness of the red. And finally, saturation, again with our red hue, saturation refers simply to the purity of the hue, the purity of the color, how red is red. So as you can see, the saturation here gets higher and higher as we move down. In terms of color, there's many different things that we can do. Um, if you take a look and review the last lecture, I went in depth into additive color mixing, subtractive color mixing, and how this all works. There are also a couple extra definitions. So we had the three main properties of color which were hue, value, and saturation. We have something else as well that corresponds to sort of lightness and darkness, and these are tones, tints, and shades. I if you were to think of a color, you could do a couple things to it. I mean, what would be the most basic? If you have no art skill whatsoever, you could still take a blob of red paint and a blob of black paint, mix them together, and get a darker red, right? And you could still take a blob of red paint and a blob of white paint and get a lighter red. Well, these things have names. So the tints, I'm, I'm skipping this one for a second, but the tints are pure colors like that red mixed with white. More and more white mixed into the red until white is obtained. A shade, you can think of it as uh, shade is like a scary ghost, you know, it's black and spectral. Uh, so it's when you mix basically black into a pure color, more and more and more and more black until you get black. What about gray? Okay, gray definitely can be made, and the way that you do this is using something called tones. So when you have a color, each color in the color wheel has an opposite. We're calling it opposite or a complementary color. It's a color that's least like that color. So for instance, the opposite of blue would be orange. That's called the complement. You can make a tone or a gray tone by taking any color and mixing its complement into it. And basically, you kind of mix them in equal amounts until you get a gray. So that's what a tone is. So tone, tints, and shades, these three terminology um, uses for color, you can think of it as 
only referring to pigments. I'm talking about mixing paint or mixing inks. Um, this is just mixing pigments, so something that is on a surface and you're mixing it externally and putting it on the surface. This does not hold for light. And there's a reason why, and again, we're going to go into that a little bit more of that next lecture. But all of the tones, tints, and shades happen when you have printed copies, inks, um, pigments, etc. And this has to do with, we're saying that light doesn't behave like that. Why? Well, the reason why has to do with how you mix colors together. To mix any colors together, it's like cooking. You need some basic ingredients. You need your primaries, so your key ingredients. Um, and of course, you know, the first thing you learn when you're coloring is, what are the primary colors? And the color colors are, the colored pencils are crayons. You usually use blue, red, yellow. Those are called the painter's primary. A primary is any color, any set of three colors, in fact, that you can mix together to get every other, other color. This is how your TV works. We have a, a red, a green, and a blue pixel, and these all mix together to give you every other color. This is also how your eye works. Your eye, when we talk about photoreceptors later on, it has light receptors at the back of your retina. It has rods and cones. So rods are for darkness and contrast, and cones are for color. But it doesn't have a, photo, a cone photoreceptor for each individual color in the spectrum. It only has three types, red, green, and blue. So these are the primary colors in our eyes. And when you mix red, green, and blue, those colors together, all together in equal amounts, you get white. The other kind of system that we use, subtractive mixing, I'm not going to review that too much today because I'd like to get to the video, but the subtractive mixing system, you can think of it as instead of adding light together, taking light away. So if red, let's say, red was very positive, if it was a value, if it was very, very, very positive, adding very, very positive red would be the same as taking very, very negative opposite red away. And it turns out that each primary has an opposite or a complement. So red's complement is cyan, C. Green's complement is magenta, M. And blue's complement is yellow, or Y. And in the middle, instead of getting white when you mix together in a subtractive scheme, you get the K, which stands for black. More on this later. I know this is, this is kind of quite a bit, photoreceptors. Photoreceptors, I've said that we have red, green, and blue photoreceptors. And there are different ways that the eye mixes light together. It's an internal process. This is additive mixing. In the eye, additive mixing happens. Next time we will talk about where additive and where subtractive mixing happen in reality and in nature. Additive systems, we know again that we've got three primaries and in terms of actually describing the wavelengths, exact wavelengths, so that there's some standard cohesion of different kinds of color, because we could all be seeing color differently. 
a body called the CIE uh, created a color standard. Um, this color standard, again, we're going to go into that next time. This is the CIE diagram. It kind of is a strange looking slice with all these colors in it that I'll show you in a moment. But you can read off the CIE diagram and match it with an X and a Y, so a horizontal and a vertical coordinate. And you can get all your colors of paint, all your colors in reality, uniquely with coordinates through that. Okay, so we talked about complements, the red, green, and blue system. Again, the red complement is cyan. Complements are opposite each other on this wheel. The green um, complement is magenta, and the yellow complement is blue. Mixing colors, additive, subtractive, primaries, and what comes from primaries? Well, then secondary colors come from primaries and tertiary colors come from mixing primaries and secondaries. All of this is nicely encapsulated in the color wheel. So instead of going point by point by point by point by text, let's take a look at the color wheel and see how we do this. So we're going to populate that color wheel. That color wheel that I said is blank last, last uh, class. Let's take a look at how to fill it in and how to remember it so it stays with us. Okay, so you'll have to, um, okay, so I was going to ask you to get out your a, uh, application, your eye clicker again, and we'll just do a really, three really quick review questions. So I'm going to start a multiple choice session now. So a tint, what is a tint? Is it a color mixed with itself, with white, with black, or with its complement. Okay, we'll give it a few more seconds here for everybody to weigh in. And you can also change your answers. As, as long as the clock's running, you are able to change your answer. It doesn't matter. You're not getting marked on whether it's right or wrong. It's just for you to test yourself, really. Okay. I'm going to stop the clock. And the answer is B. Yes, it is a pure color mixed with pure white. That's what a tint is. All right, let's go to the next question. So let's close this. And not surprisingly, you could predict this one. A tone is which of the following? Remember we had, think of tint, think of shade. Tint and shade being opposite to each other. Shade sounds ominous. You think of black. Tint sounds light. You think of white. Right? I'm, yes, I'm giving you the answer, but that's okay. Okay, so um, a tone, I'm going to, right, good, okay, I'm going to stop the clock. So a, a tone is D, a pure color mixed with its complement, a tone, think of tone, tones of gray, or like that 
movie, which I've never seen, probably won't see, but Fifty Shades of Grey, so Fifty Tones of Grey. Have a, have a different title for it. So remember tones that way. Okay. All right. So that's good. We're done our reef. You can put away your iClicker reef stuff for today. Thank you for your patience. And um, it'll be a lot smoother around next time. All right. Let me just quickly go back here. And we'll finish up this color wheel stuff. And then we'll watch the video. So non-spectral colors, just a quick word. You know, we talked about primaries. For things like purples, um, purples don't actually exist. They're just combinations or superpositions of different waves. So things that are not actually a specific wavelength by themselves, things that are combinations of other colors, those are called non-spectral colors. This is where our chromaticity diagram comes in. This is what it looks like. It probably gives you a headache right now just looking at it but it's not actually that complicated to read. Uh, and we'll, we will be learning how to read this with a fairly intuitive uh, explanation next time. But we talked about light bulbs earlier, just so you know, this is red, this is our primary, sorry, this is green, blue, and red, these dots. But this D65 dot in the middle where it's very light, that D65 is the color coordinate of standard white. So sometimes you'll see a light bulb and it'll say D65. D65 is, is the white color of the light bulb. And all colors, as we specify colors, are specified by this diagram. Okay, color schemes and harmonies. To finish things up, let's start where we began with the blank color wheel, which is not blank here. So take a look at this color wheel. And it's a beautiful sort of rainbow mixture of an outer ring, which is the color wheel itself. And the inner ring uh, have geometric shapes, triangles, and sort of polygons that are the primary colors right in the center. And right on the outside of those primary colors are the secondary colors. Those are the colors that you get when you mix yellow, blue, and red together. There are six sort of kind of color schemes that we'll talk about. I'll call it five because one of them I grouped together, but we're going to talk about complementary color schemes, analogous color schemes, split complementaries, triadics, and tetradic. And I'll show you why we even care and want to know about this in a moment. So remembering our color wheel, this is a more of a bit like a color oval, my freehand uh, PowerPoint sketching. But there's a really easy way to remember the color wheel. Think of those inner geometric shapes. When you start with any color wheel, just remember your, prim your painter's primaries, which are uh, blue, red, and yellow. Now with this color wheel, the color wheel is like another tool we use quite often. It's like a clock. Um, in terms, you don't always have to put yellow at the 12 o'clock position, but just for us, and a lot of people do it this way for convenience. Let's always put yellow in the 12 o'clock position at the top. So the primary color times then are going to be 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 8 o'clock. And you'll see this in a second. 
And the secondary color times are going to be 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 2 o'clock. It's kind of like strange. So let's, let's see it. It makes much more sense when you actually see it. So taking our primaries, yellow, blue, and red. Remember that geometric shape in the inside of the color wheel? It was a triangle. And you take your colors, primary colors, in the triangle, and where the triangle vertex points, you populate that cell of the color wheel with it. So these triangle vertex vertices are pointing to these ones. So yellow goes here, blue goes there, and red goes there. It's pretty simple, right? So your primaries are in place now. Primaries are in place, and you'll see that they're at 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 8 o'clock. Great. So now we're going to populate our secondaries. To do this, let's start again with all of our secondaries in the center. And we're going to remember that geometric shape again. And if you organize them like this, they kind of look like a, a, a triangle. This was our primaries triangle pointing up. And then you can remember to add the secondaries as a primary, as a triangle pointing down. We're going to do the same thing here. We're going to place the secondaries into their appropriate cells. So now you have your yellow, your orange, your red, purple, blue, green, and the rest of the color wheel fills itself in, essentially. It, whichever these tertiary colors, these are the primaries, secondaries, and the tertiaries, or the third ones, uh, are just the combinations of the two on either side of them. So we have essentially looking like this. We have yellow, yellow, orange, orange, red, orange, red, red, purple, 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 blue, 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 green, green, and yellow, green. And, uh, and that's really all there is to it. Um, why do we care? Well, if you're a fine artist, uh, you probably will care because you need to know these relationships. If you have a limited budget and you have primary paints and you want to know which colors to mix together to generate a certain color. And there are uh, many different ways that you do this. So let's look at these relationships and these schemes. So now that we've populated it, see it, it looks like Eaton's color wheel. look at the color schema. I'm calling them five. There's six, but five because we're grouping two together. So some colors go better together than other colors. Um, also, the color wheel is divided in half into the greens and purples and blues is, are called cool colors because they make us feel calm. And the warm colors like oranges and reds and yellows make us, they, they sort of hint at activity. They make us feel a little more agitated. When you're mad, you say, you know, I'm, I'm, my face is getting red. I'm so angry. Red is a hot or warm color. In graphic design, this can be employed in many ways. We already saw a wheel, which was showing complementary. So complementary, anybody want to Shout out another word for complementary. Opposite. Yeah, exactly. So a complementary scheme on this color wheel simply means an opposite. The opposite. So yellow and purple are opposites. Green and red, famous Christmas colors, which are used so widely, those are opposites. 
and blue and orange. They're opposites. And when you put opposites together, it kind of makes the colors pop. It's a very striking effect. So examples of what opposite color schemes look like over here. What does that look like in art? So here's um, a Claude Monet painting. This is a painting of sunset in Venice. And in fact, I was even noticing it on the drive here today with the sunset. It's always sort of orange towards the horizon and blue as you move further up. It's a really striking contrast. Um, so Monet captured this really, really nicely in his sunset in Venice. He just used different shades of, of complementary colors, orange and blue. Okay, the next relationship we're going to talk about is the split complementary scheme. This is easy to remember. It's pretty much exactly the same as complementary, so it's still opposites, but we split it halfway. So instead of being yellow-purple, we split in the middle here, and we have yellow, purple, blue, and red-purple. So here are some examples. And, and what does that look like in art? Well, these color blocks should remind you of if you have Microsoft Office or really any word processing program, usually you have different schemes and color schemes. Even PowerPoint has color schemes. And a lot of the color schemes that PowerPoint uses are exactly these kinds of color contrasts. They're either complementary, split complementary, uh, analogous, triadic, or tetradic. So all of your different slide combination colors are, are examples of this. But let's see a, a picture. Ah, it's another, another sunrise sunset. But this time it's a sunrise. This is another Monet. And in fact, if you are a fan of the Impressionist movement, this painting is sunrise. It's a sunrise at Le Havre, which was his hometown. And because Monet didn't think this was a particularly photorealistic painting, he called it Impression. Impression Soleil Levant. Impression, sunrise. And in fact, the Impressionists, because of the fact that their paintings were really shapes of light and color, this is why they were called Impressionists. And him calling his own painting Impression gave rise to the sort of Impressionist title for the Impressionist movement. So next is analogous, an analogous scheme. Wh what do you think of when you think of an analog? What's an analogy? An analogy is just, you say such and such is like such and such. It means close to, like, beside. So an analogous color scheme means beside. And not surprisingly, Analogous color schemes are simply colors that are beside each other on the color wheel. Here are some examples down on the left corner. And you can use as many as you want for analogous color schemes. You don't have to use two, three, four, as many as you want. But obviously if you use more than four or five, you really get kind of half the color wheel and the whole color wheel eventually. So that's really not a color scheme, it's just everything. Let's look at this in art. Okay, a little bit of self-indulgence here. Um, these are three of uh, my digital pieces. And 
not to say that in any way that this art is great art, but in terms of if you are an artist and you do a lot of painting and sketching, you probably will notice, whether you knew it or not, that you have a dominant working mode with your own kind of stuff. So it, it just, when I'm looking at my paintings, I can see now that I use analogous color schemes all the time. I pretty much only use analogous color schemes. And when you look at this in your own art, you'll see patterns emerging. And it can be interesting that way because you can challenge yourself to work in different, different ways with different color schemes you may not have uh, thought of before. Okay, triadic schemes, triad, triangle, right? That's three, so it sounds like a triangle. It's an equilateral or equidistant triangle. So this is your basic triangles. Like we had the primary triangle of yellow, blue, and red. You can rotate this triangle all along the color wheel and have examples such as these. To take a look now in art, what would a triadic scheme? Well, actually, you're probably pretty familiar with, with triadic colors. Triadic color schemes are typically used a lot in, in comic books, especially for superheroes. That, that iconic free color uniform is often a triadic color scheme because it seems dynamic, it seems active. So here you see Superman and you have the Flash. And these are all kind of, well, aside from the white there, these are triadic color schemes. And lastly, we have tetradic schemes, or tetradic, so tetra, four, so instead of the triangle, we have four-sided, so we have a rectangle or a square. So tetradic schemes, you can think of as rectangles, or since my color wheel is more of an ellipse, it's a really lopsided, weird-looking square. Uh, the, you, when you see the six color schemes, the other one that they call, they call tetradic a rectangle, and they call square one to itself. But this is the same kind of thing, okay? So it's four sides. A tetradic scheme. Let's take a look at, at a quick example of a tetradic scheme here. And I had to, again, take one of my very, very, very favorite paintings, which is from an artist in the early 1900s, Maxfield Parrish. This is another sunrise. It's kind of a fantasy sunrise. This is called Daybreak. It's from 1922, but you can see that color square. You've got purple, green, orange. Uh, what else do we have here? Purple, green, orange, kind of brownie, sort of red-orange. Okay. So summary, you see I gave you five. There are six here because the square and the rectangle are delineated as separate things. But for color schemes, here's a summary. And what you can do is when you turn on your computer next, and actually even when you're designing a website, if you have the link color values, like the visited link, the mouse over link, whatever, those are often in different kinds of schemes, like tetradic color schemes, um, analogous color schemes. You can make some nice graphic design decisions just by using for your, for your uh, link colors these nice schemes. All right, so now uh, I think I've talked long enough. I'm going to show um, a 28, what time is it actually? Let's see, show a 28 minute 
video on the, um, let me just quickly see what time, 10.44. Okay, yeah, so we have time um, on Newton and his experimentum crucis. You are, I would highly suggest that you stay if you can stand sitting down any longer. Um, if not, you're welcome to leave. Uh, this will be posted on the website and you can watch at your leisure. Just a few words while you're watching it. I will be posting later on a worksheet that really doesn't have very many questions, but again, for your own reference, a worksheet on things you should be looking at the video. Specifically, when white light goes through the prism, how is it reflected? How is it bent? And which wavelength is where? So that's a, that's a little hint, and I'll post that later. So enjoy the video, hopefully. If you write anything on your computer, you need to get grounded. I write pretty much all day, every day. Our world is full of diagrams, graphic representations of everything from the solar system to the hidden origins of life. They have a unique ability to express complex ideas simply, and an intellectual and artistic beauty that has the power to inspire awe and change our perceptions. Diagrams can exert a wonderful and unpredictable influence in the arts as well as in science. These extraordinary displays of light and color wouldn't have been possible without one of the greatest diagrams in the history of science. In 1664, Isaac Newton bought one of these at a country fair near Cambridge. Using a prism like this, he embarked on a series of experiments that would answer a problem that had challenged scientists for generations, the nature of light itself. And here is the vital document, Newton's hand-drawn diagram, which shows us exactly how he did it. Newton went back to the basics. What exactly is light? What is colour? His ideas didn't just transform our knowledge of what we see, they revolutionized how we communicate. And the prism and its rainbow colors have become a captivating artistic image. So how did Newton discover the real properties of light? And how did his work become a huge influence on centuries of science and art? Newton's light spectrum is so well known today that children can rattle it off in the classroom. Red, orange, yellow, blue, But 400 years ago, much less was known about light and colour. 
Scientists couldn't work out how colour was produced. They thought white sunlight was pure and that colours must be a modification of it. Then, in 1666, at the height of the Great Plague, Isaac Newton started conducting experiments with prisms that would unveil the secrets of light. As it happens, the diagram that Isaac Newton drew is kept here in my college in Oxford, New College. Now, I've never seen the diagram, but I'm told it's a rough sketch that Newton made with pen and ink on a scrap of paper he was keeping notes on. The notes weren't about light, they weren't even, in fact, about science. There were notes on theology and his thoughts about the Old Testament. Sounds familiar. My breakthroughs are usually penned on the back of old envelopes. In a very dark chamber, at a round hole, about one third part of an inch broad, I placed a glass prism, whereby the beam of the sun's light, which came in at that hole, might be refracted upwards towards the opposite wall of the chamber, and there form a coloured image of the sun. And this is the book which contains that vital diagram. It's a book of notes which date back to things he wrote at the beginning of the 18th century. And you can see he doesn't waste any of the paper. Paper was very valuable at the time. And somewhere here should be the diagram we're looking for. Ah, there it is. Beautiful. It's called The Crucial Experiment. Rather sketchily drawn, it looks a bit hurried. But this simple diagram is a pivotal image in scientific history. A graphic moment when the ancient world was overturned by modern science. What Newton shows us is his room here with two prisms, one on a stand and one on the table. Now, there's a source of sunlight here which comes through a small hole through the shutter and then it's focused by this lens and passed through the prism on the table. And this is where the magic happens. The white light passes through the prism and then is split or refracted into its constituent colours, which are then projected onto a little board that Newton's drawn at the back here. Today, we sort of think of the spectrum made up of seven colours, but Newton wasn't quite sure about that. Sometimes he wrote about five colours, six, sometimes seven. In this little diagram, he's drawn five colours. So far, so good. But what if you take one of those individual colours and shine that through a second prism? Does that get split up into even more colours? This, then, was the second part of Newton's crucial experiment. The diagram shows us another prism behind the board. The colour that passes through the second prism does not change colour. Red stays red, blue stays blue. Newton has discovered a fundamental law of nature, and he writes it out here in Latin. Nec veriat lux fracta colerum. Refracted light does not change colour. This diagram proves the colours in white light, the colours that we see in the rainbow, are immutable. 
And amazingly, over 300 years later, the crucial experiment depicted in Newton's diagram has made possible further huge scientific discoveries that have been seen not only in science, but in beautiful light art shows like these. In the 1940s, Newton's work led to the isolation of laser light and the development of holography. These holograms were produced in the 1980s by the first artist in residence of the Royal Greenwich Observatory. We found our inspiration in the library, looking at um, an early edition, first edition of Newton's optics. What he was looking at and what he was trying to observe, but he didn't, he couldn't define, was kind of in, an interference pattern. And interference is is absolutely fundamental to the hologram and making a hologram. So that kind of um, made us feel that that was a language, a kind of similarity between the optics of Newton and the kind of modern technological hologram. Do you think Newton would have enjoyed uh, the games that you've been doing with light? Yeah, I hope so. This hologram is accurately representing, for example, the color blue, which is almost impossible to do in pigments or dyes. But we've got uh, interference light here, so we've got really pure blue. We're taking what we find in a textbook and making it more magical. Somehow the language of physics, for example, can somehow destroy the beauty of the phenomenon that the scientist is observing. So in a way, I think as artists, we can put a little bit of that kind of magical, just aesthetics back into a, into a textbook diagram. So why was understanding light so important to Newton? One answer is because no one else had. Newton stood in a long line of scientists who had tried to explain how light happened. He realized it was only because of light that we can see and examine nature. So he wanted to investigate the medium that made all other scientific endeavor possible. Newton studied the traditional Aristotelian curriculum which had been studied for about 300, 400 years. And then at some point in about 1664, so two and a half years after he went to Cambridge, he suddenly gave it all up. And he started attending the, the lectures of the first Lucasian professor of mathematics, Isaac Barrow. And there he was exposed to the most advanced mathematics of its kind in Europe. And the, the, there's some very interesting material in his manuscripts which suggests that he, he's very interested in finding out how much the mind controls what we see. Newton's decision to investigate the subject of light coincided with a nationwide epidemic that would drive him out of the university and back to his home in Lincolnshire. Plague had ravaged London and was beginning to spread across the country. As one college record put it, it has pleased Almighty God to visit the town of Cambridge with a plague of pestilence. Newton had to flee Cambridge and he came back here to Walthorpe Manor. This was his family home, the place where he'd grown up and entertained himself by making sundials and model windmills. 
and he was now about to embark on some of the most important experiments of his career. It's said that Newton loved apples, and over there is the direct descendant of the tree that Newton reputedly sat under when the apple hit him on the head and he grasped the full significance of gravity. This is also where Newton discovered one of the most important topics in my subject, the calculus, which helps you to calculate the changing speed of an apple as it flies through the air. At Walsthorpe, Isaac Newton's work on gravity, calculus and light would turn him into the architect of all future science. He believed passionately that the real truth about light and colour had yet to be found, and he went to extraordinary lengths to discover it. Some of his experiments were really dangerous. On one occasion, he slid a bodkin like this, a large flat needle, betwixt my eye and the bone, as near to the backside of my eye as possible. Not for the squeamish this. But what it did was to alter the curvature of the retina, and the more that he pushed, the more rings of colour he saw. The light was refracting as he manipulated his eye. This mad obsession arose out of Newton's conviction that there was, as you might say, more to light than met the eye. Hello. To understand how Newton did his prism experiment, and about just how important it still is, I've joined research scientist Kate Lancaster. Yeah, so he used uh, the sun as a light source, and the sun sprays light in all directions. Um, and you need a parallel beam for this experiment to work. So what Newton did was he used a lens to collimate the light, i.e. make it parallel. But we're going to use a slit. Uh, okay. Our source is far away, so what the slit does is basically limit us to the rays that are just going in one direction. The resulting parallel beam of light we then put through a prism, just as Newton did, and we can see on the wall oh, yes, that okay. the spectrum yeah. has appeared. parallel beam of light is passing through this prism and goes through a process called refraction, which is essentially bending the light. And each colour that makes up the white light is actually refracted different amounts. So hence why the light is actually being able to be dispersed into its different colours. Some people argued that actually the prism did the colouring, but Newton actually devised a second part to this experiment which showed that this wasn't the case. Uh -huh. He actually used a second slit to select one colour. So I'm going to select red. Then I put a second prism in. And basically what we've done is we're refracting that red light. It's not been further coloured, it's just been further refracted by the second prism. So this was, to Newton, the definitive experiment, which showed that, number one, white light was made up of multiple colours, but number two, it wasn't the prism that was colouring the light at all. So why is this experiment important? Well, I mean, it was the first time people realised that white light was actually made up of multiple colours. And that information almost certainly influenced people like James Clerk Maxwell, who was a scientist at, at the end of the 19th century, in his discovery of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. You know, so there are things beyond from, the blue you know, and the red on either side, which we can't microwaves, see. Microwaves, radio waves, all the way up to hard X-rays and gamma rays. Without the knowledge of the electromagnetic spectrum, we wouldn't have modern communications. 
So it would be a really silent world without the knowledge of this EM spectrum. So this tiny, small, simple experiment just has a massive impact in our lives. It gave us the first inkling of what, what really is out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Newton's way of, of doing things combines uh, something that can be drawn. Uh, it's very important for Newton that you can see things. The drawings we have of his work in the late 1660s, um, that, that they show a, a great obsession with precision. And that marks out his, his mathematics and indeed his science uh, thereafter. On Newton's return to Cambridge, he began refining his theories. Scientists have been investigating the properties of light for 2,000 years. They knew that light travels in straight lines, and that we see objects because of light rays bouncing off them. The Roman mathematician Ptolemy had noticed that light bends when it enters glass or water. And as Newton took up residence again at Trinity, over in Italy, Galileo was busy working out the speed at which light reaches us from the sun. What made Newton different was that no one agreed with him. The theory that he's putting forward is so incredibly unusual. Now he is saying that white light is composed of a number of primary coloured rays that are brought together. Everybody else says that colours are confused modifications of white light. Uh, everybody else uh, is wrong. I think you can see the tension between Newton's radically new thinking and the accepted science of the period in another of his diagrams. It's called the colour wheel and it appears in book one of optics. This is a first edition and it dates back to 1704. But the ideas it contains were discovered some 30 years earlier. And here's the wheel. What Newton expected when he refracted white light through a prism is that it would come out looking like this, like a wheel. It's what most people thought at the time. The fact that Newton drew this diagram is somehow echoing that old thought. His spectrum has seven colours this time, unlike the five he had in the prism's diagram. Many experts think he was keen on seven, because it would marry light to other harmonious features of the universe, such as the musical notes of an octave, which he marks next to each colour. The colours complement each other as you move around the wheel, until eventually violet shades into red. It's a little bit like the idea of a musical scale. If I start on the note C, I end on a note which sounds remarkably like the note I started with, which we also call a C. Everything about this image really harks back to the idea of a divine order. So, if Newton had solved the mystery of light, what were the implications? Was it just a theoretical abstract breakthrough? Or were there practical uses? Well, in 1668, Newton turned his attention to trying to design a new telescope. He realised that the breakthroughs he'd made on light and glass could help him to solve a problem that had dogged astronomers across the world. 
The scientific revolution of the mid-1600s had depended on refracting telescopes, the kind Galileo used to survey the stars. But they had a problem with chromatic aberration. As light hit the lens, it refracted, creating a blur of colour. For Newton, light was the key to seeing into nature. An accurate telescope was essential. He decided to create a reflecting telescope with mirrors. Tucked away in his rooms here in Trinity, he ground the mirrors using a new alloy he'd invented. He'd made the case and the mount. The thing was scarcely six inches long, yet it had a magnification of 40 times its diameter. The equivalent refracting telescope at the time was some six feet long. Newton's grasp of refraction, so brilliantly captured in his diagram, was the key to achieving the perfect telescope. This is the Orion Optics factory. The only company in Britain that produces top-class telescopes from scratch. Including the Europa 150 Newtonian telescope, a direct descendant of what Newton made in the 1660s. Newton found that a well-made mirror at one end reflected a perfect image to a second mirror angled to face the eyepiece. People said that single-handedly he'd revolutionised the science of optics. He was well on his way to becoming the country's leading scientist and an acknowledged genius at 28. But Newton has had his critics as well. The poet John Keats felt that Newton had reduced the beauty of light to a mere event created by particles. A cold philosophy, he called it, that would unweave the rainbow. But there's an irony here. Artists have frequently used Newton's scientific diagram as the inspiration for art. It's hard to imagine, but there is a connection between Isaac Newton and Pink Floyd. In 1973, the prism was the key idea behind one of the most visually exciting album covers in the history of rock music. Dark Side of the Moon. Cover's designer was Storm Thorgerson. It was related to Pink Floyd's light show, and we were also responding to the keyboard player, the late Rick Wright, who said, let's not have one of your pictures, Storm. And he said, why not some cool graphic? Newton was not in our minds particularly. I think I had originally seen a textbook drawing which is very straightforward, much like this, but only in black and white. I thought, well, that's quite nice. I mean, we're not scientists. It's the graphic rather than the science that makes it strong. And the triangle is part of that graphic. And I think that the graphic allows you to screw with it, allows you to mess around without, as it were, altering its integrity.
behind me here is the stained glass window, which I much prefer, which is also uh, cute. Is that the word? Nifty, because it's rendered in something that is about light, namely glass. And its subject is about light, because it's the prism and spectrum. But it is very clearly dark side of the moon. If you get it when the sun's shining through it, it's beautiful. I recommend it to anybody who has a private chapel. So you think if you showed somebody that, they might think Pink Floyd before they thought Newton? I think they would definitely think Pink Floyd before Newton. I suspect Pink Floyd... Pink Floyd's album cover makes it seem that there is in nature a band of distinctive colours. They appear as separated. Each has a name. But what are we actually seeing when we identify colour? Is the way the brain perceives light as important as the light itself? And is it entirely accurate to give colours different and separate names? Newton believed that the properties of light meant that each wavelength corresponded to an individual colour. But is that considered scientifically accurate today? I'm visiting Bo Lotto in North London. He's a scientist whose specialist study is the perception of colour. Colour doesn't in fact exist outside the brain. The brain makes it all up. Uh -huh. Colour is purely a function of the brain. Newton showed us that you can take white light and you can break that into different wavelengths. But I can take any one of those wavelengths and it can cause you to see it in lots of different ways. So here, what I want you to notice is that you have an outline drawing of two cubes. Yeah, yes? kind of uh, mega Rubik's cubes. Yeah. Like. The one on the left has four gray tiles. Yeah. And the one on the right has seven gray tiles. Yeah. Okay. They're all the same grays. But are you saying you could mess with my mind to such an extent that I would call that actually a completely different color? Yes. I'm not going to change the physical quality of those surfaces at all. Okay. Right. So tell me what happens to your perception when I reveal these two scenes. Whoa. Uh, it's changed to blue. And what you're seeing there now is the two scenes as if they're under different conditions of illumination, under different lights. The four blue tiles are all grey on the left. Okay. And they're all the same here, as the seven yellow tiles on <laughs> the right. They're all grey. Oh no. What Bo has done is to throw a differently coloured light over the cube, except where it's grey. That ambient light alters my perception of the grey tiles. That's your physical reality. Yeah. Right? All the things are physically grey, but that's your perception Whoa. reality. I would have said there were three different colours there, and you're saying there's really only one wavelength of colour. There's one wavelength, right? But I can get that. I can get you to see that wavelength in lots of different colours. I mean, does this make some sort of nonsense then of what Newton was? You know, he argued about maybe there are five, six, seven colours in the spectrum. But in some sense, does that not make any sense then? What he was really demonstrating is the physicality of light, right? Which was, of course, tremendously important. But what he wasn't talking about necessarily was the perception of light. 
So the reason why you see that as blue there is because in your past experience, a gray light coming under yellow light would in fact have meant a blue surface, just the laws of physics. So that's why you're seeing it as blue, because it would have been useful to see it that way. I'm kind of intrigued to see what color my top's going to be tomorrow morning after all this. Three hundred years after Newton drew his diagram to explain his theory of light to the world, it still reaches down through history and touches even a brand new science like cognitive behavior. And by revealing the real properties of light and color, Newton made it possible to develop fiber optics, laser technology and holography. It's these wider scientific and artistic consequences that confirm the enormity of what this great man did when he sketched out his crucial experiment on a scrap of notepaper. It's amazing to realize how much Newton understood about light from such simple experiments. He buys a prism in a country fair, sets up an experiment in his bedroom, and suddenly the mysteries of light are revealed. The genius of Newton is to look at nature through the prism of mathematics. Geometry, the lines and angles that he drew inside that diagram, what gave him the insights into the mystery of light and color. That diagram, the little hand-drawn sketch that he drew on a scrap of paper, not only revolutionized scientific thinking, it also gave us an unforgettable image of enduring beauty. There's comedy this evening at 10 with Reggie Perry after we take to the skies next for Britain from Above. Oh, there, there you have it. I love that stained glass window. Okay, well, thank you for staying and I will see everybody on Friday. Bye.